Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to Rest. Good morning, Rest Church! Good morning. So, I, I gotta share, this is not in my sermon, but I gotta share some news with you. And if you don't like it, I don't care. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna make no promises. This morning, um, as you guys know, Molly and I, we commute from Princeton, and uh, sometimes folks are like, why do you guys drive that far? Well, number one, it's because God called us to do it, um, but number two, it, it offers us great family time, and um, we have a lot, of, a lot of good discussions, and this morning, I put on this song, it's uh, called Love Me Back to Life, it's by this uh, indie Christian artist uh, chick, and uh, as we're listening to the song, Ezra goes, what does it mean to be loved back to life? And so we explain the gospel to him again in the car this morning. And Ezra's been, he's my youngest, he's been growing in knowledge of the scriptures. And this morning, he professed Jesus as Lord. As Johan said to me this morning, he goes, you'll, you'll never want to sell that truck. <laughs> so yeah, great, amen. All right, turn off the waterworks. Um, Albert Einstein was once asked by one of his students, Dr. Einstein, how many feet are in a mile? To the utter um, astonishment of the student, Einstein replied, I don't know. The student wasn't sure if the Einstein was you know, joking with him or not. And he said, surely, Dr. Einstein, you know this. Every school child knows how many feet are in a mile. And Einstein looks back and says to the student, I make it a rule not to clutter my mind with simple information that I can find in a book in five minutes. Einstein was not interested in trivial data. His passion was to explore the deep things of the universe. His passion of mathematics and physics and the physical truth made him a pivotal fixture in modern world history. I mean, he is one of the greatest foremost minds of all of human history. And what's funny is, is we're called to have a very similar passion, a passion to know God, a thirst for knowledge of God that should drive us to drink deeply at the fountain of Scripture. And most churches, you come in and it's like fast food church. You come in, they give you a 20-second self-help, Reader's Digest version of the Bible, a narcissistic view on the scriptures, and peace out, you leave feeling happy and healthy. But the reality is, is we never truly drink at the fountain of scripture. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to challenge you over this week and next week to go with me to the depths of the scripture as we come to a very, very, very pivotal and, and complex topic within our series in the book of Romans. Over the next two weeks, as we go through um, what, what I titled Justification 101, 
part one and justification 101 part two next week, we're going to grapple and wrestle with some deep theological truths. In particular, we're going to evaluate God's intervention into human history. In doing so, he has offered his body as a blood sacrifice for our redemption to bring about justification for all who would call upon his name. We will learn how he was able to do this because he was the perfect propitiation for the wrath of God the Father. Maybe you're here today and you go, whoa, hold on, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. I don't know what you just said. I don't know half those words. That's okay. That's okay. Because we are going to exfoliate them. We're going to understand them. And I'm going to challenge you if you say, pastor, theology's not my thing. I'm going to ask you to make it your thing because it is definitely a Jesus thing. Before we unpack these particular truths from Romans, I want to pause and let's just take a a quick look back of where we've been because we've taken a five-week hiatus from the book of Romans and we've spent nearly at this point an entire year getting to where we're at. And so here we are, chapter 3, verse 21, but I want us to kind of look back three kind of main thoughts as I tried to put into context three chapters of the book of Romans. Number one, Romans is the fullest expression of the theology of Paul. Romans is the fullest expression of the theology of Paul. Sorry, the waterworks got the nose going. Number two, we have all broken the laws of God, right? So we, we saw early on, Paul says, you have the, the, the law, the Torah, the Mosaical law, all the Jews have broken it. But not just the Jews have broken the Mosaical law, but that all the Gentiles have broken the law of God that has been written on everyone's heart, you, right? Because Paul starts off Romans and he says, everyone is without excuse for the heavens declare that there is a divine creator. And so he says, Everyone is a transgressor, whether it be to the physical law of Moses or it be the law that's written on human hearts. And then the third kind of thing is, is the redemptive story of mankind starts with God's wrath. In case you weren't with us for basically what felt like forever, for, for four and a half months, it was like wrath this, wrath that, God's going to smite you, smite you, smite you, smite, 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 smite you, right? And, and, and we were making a joke about... When's it going to end? Today. Today it's going to end. So if you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be at verse 21, reading through 26. And we're going to read both this passage in, in its entirety this week and in its entirety next week as we try to unpack these over the next two weeks. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Church, let us pray. Father, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, we ask that today, that God, that you would move, that you would move in your scriptures, in our hearts, that, Lord, that you, we would give you permission to reprove and to rebuke us. It's in God's holy name we pray. Amen. In this short passage that we've just read, verses 21 through 26, we find some of the most important truths in the Bible concerning the nature of salvation 
And, and, and in particular, as, as we looked back and as we look back in Romans chapter one, kind of verse 18 to chapter 320, we saw that we are great sinners, right? We saw that we're all great sinners. Now in chapter three, 21 through 26, we learn of the greatness of Christ's salvation working on behalf of all sinners. So, so how, how do we, how do we kind of bend this up? Well, 18, uh, chapter 1, 18 through 320, the universal um, human problem is exposed. What is that problem? Come on, people. What is it? All right, thank you, thank you. Making me believe I'm in a Presbyterian church. Verse 21 through 26, they have great theology though. The universal human problem is solved in how? Christ Jesus. And so, so we see the problem is sin and the solution is Jesus. Some outsiders, some, some folk from, from, from among the theological community, some theological juggernauts have, have said that this particular passage in Romans is one of the most important in all of the Bible. This particular passage because of the depth and the weight of what Paul is driving home when he writes this letter to the church in Rome. Others have, have stretched that concept and, and they basically said that not only is it maybe the most important in Romans, but for a Protestant, for a person who believes in Jesus, this should be the life verses of every one of us. In, in fact, Martin Luther says this about it, the chief point and very central place of the epistle and the whole Bible. That's what Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation said about this passage we just read. Or Leon Morris says, it is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Mark Bird says, the epicenter of Paul's gospel. This particular passage in Romans is so important because we see mega themes of the saving righteousness of God. What are those things? We see justification. We see God's redemptive plan on human history. Not only his redemptive plan on human history, but we see propitiation, how that God absorbs the wrath through his son, Christ Jesus, we find grace, the, the truth of grace. Then we find faith and so much more. And you put all those together in this one passage and oh my goodness, is it incredible. So as we kind of unpack, let's look at verse 21 in particular. We're gonna get real far in this verse really fast. But now. But now. What sweet words have, what no sweeter words have ever been spoken, but now. Why so sweet? You're like, but, but now, uh, okay, what, why? Well, let's, let's flip back to verse 20. What's he, what's he saying but now to? Here it is, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You cannot be good enough. You can't do enough good works. You can't do enough good deeds to earn your justification, to earn your right position before God the Father. That, this is why that Jesus had to come to save us from the curse of the law because we were incapable. We could not achieve our path to being there. So, so he interjects this phrase, but now, no sweeter words. Essentially, he says, you were left out in the cold. You didn't have a prayer in the world, but then the son of God stepped down from heaven and took your place, but now. Paul is described in verse 20, our collective awful position. We're all stuck in this depravity. We all, everyone check this out. We all have the cancer of sin latched to every strand of our DNA. We are born from our mother's womb, God-hating individuals and self-gratifying people. We love ourselves. We don't like to prune things out of our lives that we like. We love ourselves, and that is the condition of sin. Because of this sin, 
We are incapable of keeping the law. Even on our best behavior, we are still separated. But now, God has done something on behalf of all men. He has intervened. So when we see this phrase, but now, we can just say, he has intervened. But now, he has intervened. You're just going to have to bear with me for a second. In 20 years of preaching, that's the first time that's ever happened. (laughs) But now, we were losers, lost without hope, but now Christ Jesus has done what we could not do for ourselves. He intervened and stepped into human history. So let's pick up back in the text, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, Jesus, the righteousness of God, Jesus has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law of the prophets bear witness to it. To make sure we get the full context here of this particular verse, I, I, I feel inclined in a couple verses here to read to you the New Living Translation. And, and I never do this. In case you're a first-time guest with us, I'm a, I'm a staunch ESV guy for the most part. And the reason why I did is because as I, was, as, as I got deep into the Greek, this week, I just felt like, man, the ESV really missed the mark here in these short few verses because as I started looking at um, some other translations and actually the transliteration, that was for uh, Julie, transliteration from the Greek into the English, I said, man, there's, there's too much ambiguity, too much charged church language in this particular verse for us to kind of make sure that we collectively all understand it. So I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation so that we all kind of get what's going on here. Verse 21, NLT, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him. He has shown us a way to be right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Up until this point in biblical history, our only hope and fellowship with God was by following the law of Moses. But now God has made a way to the Father apart from the law. What is the way? What is the way, church? What is the way? Verse 22, Paul opens up and he says, here's the way. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. It's this simple, church. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only way to God the Father. There is no other name by which man can be saved. There is no other way to access to God the Father. And and I understand that there is this perception in the world that that is a narrow, bigoted view. And and I understand that that might be how they feel. But the reality is the Savior of the world, our Savior that we call, that we follow, said he is the only way. We didn't assign that truth to him. He assigned it to himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way except for through him. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the righteousness of God that has been manifest apart from the law. Jesus is the righteousness of God that has been manifest apart from the law. See in verse 21, it says that it is came through him. The word came and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God in flesh, the word himself, the logos has came to dwell among us his incarnation. And not just that, but the cool thing about the scriptures, man, and I wish I would have put the graphic up of all the cross references and all of the things that point us to Jesus in the Old Testament. Say what you will, you can think we're living a fairy tale, man, but if we're living a fairy tale, those jokers wearing robes back in the early first century and you know, BC, they were really good at predicting the future. Really, really good. 
All things in the Old Testament, they point us to Jesus. They point to his coming. Jesus is the way of escape from the bondage of our depravity, church. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, he has made a way when there is no way. By what Paul is saying here, it's deeper than just Jesus is the way, though. Paul isn't just giving us Jesus is the way cursory statement. Paul is saying the bridge to our righteousness before God is faith. The bridge over the chasm between our sin and where God is, that bridge is only built by faith. It cannot be built by works. It is not built by your merit. It is only by faith. Once again, I want to make sure that there's no ambiguity about what the scriptures are actually saying. And I'm going to read verse 22 from the NLT again. We are made right, say right. We are made right with God by placing our what church? Faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for who? Everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Church, I want you to catch this because this is one of the most important things about Christianity that you can know. It's one of the most important things that you can know. We are made right, or in church speak, we are saved by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the total sum of salvation. That's the total sum of the equation. It is, there is faith, there, there is no faith plus anything. There is no faith plus anything. It is faith alone. Say faith alone. Faith, faith Sometimes we struggle with this because we, we confess it here, but we go home and we begin to doubt our salvation because sometimes our works don't align with what our calling is. And the reality is, is God has called all of us to holiness. He has called us to strive for perfection. So never miss that. God's not down with our sin. There is no ride or die with Jesus for our sin. He hates our sin. It is repugnant and, and, he, and he despises it in every way. But we can't earn more favor from God by doing good works. In fact, the scriptures tell us that our good works are filthy rags to him. What are those filthy rags? They're menstruation rags, is what actually is going on in the text. And so there is no faith plus anything. That's it. It's the total sum of our faith. Faith alone. So what am I saying? There is no faith plus praying through for salvation. I was, I was taught at some point in my life by many preachers that you can't know Jesus by professing Jesus as Lord and, and surrendering your life to him. You have to come pray through. And until you have that moment where snot slinging and you're jabba-jabbing, you, you don't know Jesus. I was also taught that, 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 that you had to speak in tongues for you to know the scriptures. No, there is no faith plus speaking in tongues. Tongues is a gift. It is not the seal. There is no faith plus being baptized for salvation. It is faith alone. Faith alone. There is no faith plus confirmation in the scriptures. Some father blesses you and says, yes, yes, now you know. Don't commit any mortal sins. No, no, that's not taught in the scriptures. There is no faith plus receiving the Eucharist for you to know God. That, that's not taught in the scriptures. There is a matter of theological importance that we must grapple with here in this notion of faith alone. And I want you to catch this because there's misconceptions even in the Protestant faith when it comes to faith alone. 
It is not faith that saves. It is not even faith in God that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. It is the object of our faith that has the ability to save. And only object that has the ability to save is Jesus Christ. I, 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 need, you to, I need you to wrestle with that. Because even the demons have faith in God. James tells us that. Even the demons have faith. That you do well. But the, it's about the object of our faith. We must have faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We must confess Jesus as Lord. Faith in Jesus is our only hope. Because of our sin nature, it has made us impossible to earn favor with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, the man who has faith is the man who no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord, Jesus Christ, and his finished works, and rests on that alone. Our faith is not tied to us. It is tied in what he has already done. That is saving faith in the redeeming work that Jesus did on the cross. And, 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 and he finishes out verse 22. I want you to see how he finishes out verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. There's great debate in the transliteration of this passage as to where this phrase lands, where the colon or semicolon or period is to be. In fact, if you were to just get into the raw Greek, it, 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 is, it is very hard to make that determination. But as I, as I, as I kind of tried to pick apart all these different translations and how that they landed to where they're at, Honestly, whether the semicolon lands here or there or there's a period there or there, it, it doesn't matter because there's two options and both options are true. Option number one for this particular passage of there is no distinction. Option one is, is there is no distinction that salvation is open for all who would place their faith in Jesus Christ and believe. That's, that's what um, the NASB has it as, that's what the NLT has it as, and the ESV kind of has it as option two, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and are apart from the work of the cross are hopeless. Doesn't matter though, because in either case, no matter what, we're still stuck in the same plight, because the reality is, is we've all sinned, and all who would confess Jesus as Lord have the ability, no matter of your race, no matter of, of the creed that you come from, no matter what orientation you might live your life in, if you would repent of your sin, you can come to know Jesus. So it's all the same. But one distinction that I have to make here that I believe is important for us to wrestle with is this. In either case, the gospel kills racism. Showing us that we're all the same in the eyes of God. No matter if, it, if the colon points to for all our sinners or the colon points to for all can know Christ, essentially what it's saying is, is no matter what your socioeconomical background, no matter what your race is, whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, no matter how you were brought up, we're all in the same position. We're all in the same boat. The gospel expels racism. So at the slightest hint of racism, what I want to say to you is that is demonic. It is demonic. Because we are all God's children. There is none of us who has less eternal worth than the other. So, 
We're hopeless apart from Christ. Why are we hopeless apart from Christ? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want to underscore just quickly what I believe we all understand here. I believe over the last few months, over the last eight years here at Rest Church, that everyone understands we are all sinners. We are sinners by both will and by birth. This has been passed to us by our father Adam in the garden. What does this mean? We are all born spiritually dead. We are all born spiritually dead. And in this verse 23, if you'll pull up that that scripture again, verse 23 for me there. I so wish Paul would have used stronger language here. Because to the outside person who doesn't truly dive into the depths of understanding the atonement of Christ, the work that was required to bring us into right relationship with God, one might come to an incorrect conclusion when we read this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And maybe you're like, I don't know what you mean. I wish Paul would have used stronger language. This is, this is the reality of the gospel. We don't just fall short of the finish line, church. We never even start the race. I, I want you to understand the chasm between us and God, the Father, before we come to know Jesus is so wide. It's not like, hey, I, I, I've been running this marathon and I get to the finish line and all of a sudden my body starts cramping and, and, and I land out and I'm just short. I'm just barely short of where the God, God the Father is and earning my righteous reward in heaven. I, I didn't just come up just a tad bit short like in horseshoes and hand grenades. No, I didn't even start the race. I am spiritually dead from the moment I exit my mother's womb. I am nothing but out for myself. Everything I do for everyone else is on my own motivations to make me look good, to make me feel good. And they're never in such a way to bring glory to God. We, church, are immeasurably separated from him. So so don't think it's just, hey, man, I'm just a little bit short. Don't buy the lie that I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. I treat people good. No, you're not. You're a filthy, wicked sinner. That's why I'm just, just this is for free. This is for free. When somebody says, well, just follow your heart. I just want to look over at them and be like, give me some powder. And just, what? Don't follow your heart. Your heart is the beginning of all corruption. You are inherently flawed. Don't follow your heart. Please don't follow your heart. We are immeasurably separated from him. Verse 25, and, or verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified by his grace. Here we find Paul bringing a legal term into the fray using the word justified. And maybe you haven't read much of Paul and you feel like, man, this legal term feels like it's out of, out of place. Paul wants to underscore to the, to the readers in the church in Rome that we are in a legal, eternal predicament. We are, we are in a legal, eternal predicament. To make sure that, that, that we all understand each other, the picture is clear in the cosmic courtroom, we all stand guilty. We have committed a crime against God the Father, and that crime is our sin, and make no mistake about it, we are guilty, and the punishment for that sin is eternal death, eternal separation from the presence of the goodness of God in hell. But God the Father, in his justice and mercy, made a way through his Son, through his blood, 
of only his son, only that eternal blood has made a way that we can be forgiven and justified before him. Justified before him. The reality is, whole doctrinal theses have been written on the study of justification. Entire books, and I'm talking about some of the smartest minds that the world has, have written on this particular topic. And so what I want to say to you is there is no way that I possibly in one or two or even in a sermon series cover for you the depths of this particular word justification. But in an effort to not miss the forest for the trees, I'm going to try to make all of these verses that we've just read together, weave them together to give you a baseline of the Protestant view of justification. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know what justification is. Well, it's good. Because uh, I'm going to share with you a great um, definition from uh, probably the, the top modern theologian in the world today, Wayne Grudem. And it says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thanks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. I'm going to read that again. Justification is the instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. But then on the second hand, justification declares us to be righteous in his sight. This is kind of the the view of justification. It's this instantaneous moment where we are made right before God the Father. Maybe you you haven't been around church and we use the word grace a lot. Chances are you've been to a funeral, heard somebody saying amazing grace. You've always wondered, you know, what, what, outside of that being a name, what does that mean? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Meaning that you've been given something that you did not earn, that you could not acquire for yourself, that he has freely given that to you. So we as Christians, if you call Jesus Lord, if you profess him, you are justified by grace. You are made instantaneously right for something you did not earn. So let's put together this this full thought. We have been legally forgiven of our sins by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Our record is expunged. But that's not all. We have not only been expiated of our sins, expunged, our record has not only just been expunged, but, and we haven't just merely been forgiven because justification is bigger than just simple forgiveness. Justification essentially is saying, is saying this, that if we had only been forgiven today and we sinned, then we would be damned by the rest of the, the afternoon. If it was just forgiveness, right? If it was just expiation, if our, if, if our record was only expunged, you'd be forgiven today And by the rest of the afternoon, you'd be damned again. But so much more is going on in justification than just expiation, than just your record being expunged. So what is it saying here? What is it it declaring? We have been declared righteous. You have been declared righteous. And and I've talked about this before, but you're no longer just a sinner, You are also mutually a saint. You are a sinner only because you still have this vagabond, this bag of bones that you're still carrying around. But if you have called Jesus as Lord, God the Father doesn't look at you as a sinner. He looks at you as a saint. You say, so where where does that come from? And, And we share this scripture all the time because it shares the weight of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus... To be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. 
at the cross, as Jesus was hanging there for us, this is essentially what happens. We have this transaction that occurs. Say transaction. And, and, and this transaction, if you want to get real nerdy, it's called imputation, occurs. And what happens is, is on the cross, essentially imagine it like a shirt. Jesus takes our sin shirt off of us. I won't raise my shirt because you don't need that in your life. Jesus takes our sin shirt off and he puts it on himself. Which is great. That's called expiation. Record expunged. But that's not all of the transaction that happens at the cross. Put back up 521 for me. But we see that Jesus takes off his righteousness and he imputes it. He transacts it over to us, putting it on us. That we might become the righteousness of God. He doesn't leave us in our dirt. He doesn't just pick us up out of the ground and wipe us off. No, he, it's, it's like playing Mario Kart and you run through the star and all of a sudden you got the bubble around you and you're running around, can't nothing touch you, man. That is the picture of justification. It's not just forgiveness, but that it is he's imputed. He has given to us his righteousness. Church, you are redeemed. If you know Jesus, you are not dead in your sins. That is justification. incredible is this our righteousness is the blood of the lamb and the truth is every time we read the story of Exodus it is the foreshadowing of God's righteousness Because the reality was, in Goshen, the Israelites were no better than that of the Egyptians. It was just a matter of who had the sword on that day. The difference was, was who was covered by the blood of the Lamb. And the same is true for us because there is no differentiation between us and the lost folks of the world except for the fact we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. I want you to, to come back to verse 24 and I'm going to read the NLT again to make sure that we're all capturing here and to remove all the ambiguity because the weight of this is so important. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. This is the gift of grace. We did nothing, absolutely nothing to earn it or deserve it. This gift was freely given to us by placing our faith in Jesus. I can't stress the freely enough because it's possible to even think of our faith as a work sometimes. We, oh, I got faith, I've got faith. But the reality is, is this word freely means without cause. It is a way that totally and, and wholly is unwarranted and it was given and done to us for no reason. So we can't fall prey to the subtle mistake of thinking that our faith actually saves us. That would be an understanding of both the Old and New Testament. It is the work of Christ that saves us. 
Tim Keller says this about, about this topic. He says, faith is simply the attitude of coming to know God with empty hands. Faith is simply the attitude of coming to know God with empty hands. It's like a mother who, uh, who has her uh, um, son walk into the kitchen and says, Mommy, I'm hungry. Can you fix me something to eat? Did that, did, if mom gives that baby some food, did that baby bring anything to it? No. Our faith is the same equation. We brought nothing to God except for ashes. He redeemed our ashes and gave us life. Faith, church, is only the instrument by which you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. It is only the instrument by which you receive your salvation. We as a church must cling to justification by faith alone dearly because anything else added to that statement is not the true gospel. If you confess Jesus as Lord, you are freely made right in his sight immediately and forevermore. I I want you to hear that because there's so much distortion of the unabridged, beautiful gospel. If you make a profession of faith in Christ Jesus as Lord, you don't need anything else to be saved eternally and securely for the rest of your life. Maybe you're like, Pastor, but they need to do good works. They need to go get baptized. All these things, yes, yes, the, the scriptures invoke, they call us to do those things, but faith is the root and the other things are the fruit. It all begins from faith. This topic of faith alone for justification is why I completely believe what Martin Luther began on October the 31st of 1517 that would later be referred to as the Reformation was a return to the truly apostolic. And when I say apostolic, I mean to the way of the teachings of the original apostles' view of salvation. Where they affirmed what we as a church call the five solas saying, I'm going to cover four of the five here, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That we are saved by grace alone, God's unmerited favor, through faith alone, without works and deeds, on the basis of Christ alone who came and lived a perfect and sinless life and was bought our propitiation, bought our justification for the glory of God alone to reunite him with his creation, to restore the garden where he could walk in fellowship with his people. The reformers did something beautiful for the church in the 1500s. They bought her, brought her back to the scriptures alone and a true biblical teaching of salvation and justification. And here at rest, we firmly believe the only requirement for justification is a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. is the great hope of the cross for you. Maybe, man, you have royally screwed your life up. I mean, every turn you have messed something up. You, 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 you did 
dumb things in high school. You were in trouble. Maybe you got pregnant or you got someone pregnant in high school. And maybe, maybe, maybe you were in and out of jail even, doing drugs, this, that, and the other. Maybe you went to college and you, you flunked out of college. Maybe, maybe you've been married two, three, four, five, six times and you can't seem to find the right thing. And you say, man, I, I can't seem to get it together. I can't seem to find my way. I want to tell you, you don't need to fix your life to come to Jesus. Because Jesus specializes in the rehab projects. Jesus knows how to take murderers and turn them into apostles. And on the opposite end, maybe you're the person, man, you've never made a mistake in your life. But the reality is you're exhausted at the weight of that. At the weight of always consciously making the right choices in hopes of earning the approval of someone else, in hopes that maybe God will grant you favor, but it seems to not be working out. You're, you're just like, I can't, I'm trying so hard. Why is it not working out? Well, the reality is you'll never be good enough. Because it's not that you've just fallen short, you never started the race. In both cases, can I invite you to put on the righteousness of God today? Can I invite you to take off your sins and to put on his righteousness and live in that space? Would you be so bold to make a profession of faith? Would you be so bold to build a bridge of faith across the, the chasm that separates you from God the Father? I can tell you this. stands ready waiting for you. Maybe today you're, you're having this internal battle. You know that God is calling you. To put your faith in him. You've been fighting it fiercely. will tell you that if you just take that step it's not that Jesus is going to meet you halfway it's not that he's going to meet you 75% of the way it's not even 80% of the way he's going to meet you all the way because the truth is, is the gospel isn't God helps those who help themselves. No, God helps those who cannot help themselves. And so would you die to yourself today and be born again?